episode 29 of Etc. Etc. with young Southpaw. That's moi. Me if you ain't got your French tongue on. Now, this is just bizarre, man. We had this huge power outage during a storm recently. And finally, when the lights came back on, there was a note sitting on the table that simply read, Free Jazz, the musical. Now, I had left the note to myself before the power went out, but, you know, what if? During that power outage, I mean, I wasn't in the same room the entire time. What if someone snuck in and replaced it with an exact copy of that same note? Whew! I mean, there's like a lot of implications here. It would mean that someone has the original, well, my original, free jazz, the musical note. But also, that someone could have been coming to give me a note that read, Free Jazz the Musical. Talk about synchronicity, or not the police album, that wasn't Free Jazz, I mean, as far as I know. Never really heard the whole thing. But I'm not sure what for, you know, why all this would be happening. My own personal gain? Or, like, maybe I I wasn't the target at all. Like, maybe they just needed to hide it from their pursuers, you know? In which case, maybe I shouldn't be mentioning it on this podcast, but I'm too late, you know? Information's now out there, a gift to the world, you know? Besides, it could very well be that someone besides myself wanted me to have this idea. You know? I mean, I also wanted myself to have this idea. That's why I left the note in the first place. Because it's not like they left me contact info. You know, get in touch and we'll make Free Jazz the musical together, you know? I don't think it was like some renegade financial backer who was like, this is going to be the next big thing. We totally need young Southpaw. I mean, he's always wanted to learn to play the bass clarinet. But, you know, I mean, much like the very world we live in. We can't really say for sure what the origins of free jazz, the musical, are. I mean, of course, I'd like to claim authorship, but phew, that's a lot of power. And like... I think, like, no matter how it came to me, I think I've hit upon a moneymaker. You know, like that old blues song, you know, Shake Your Moneymaker, Elmore James, you know? And that first Black Crows album, too. I mean, in no way am I suggesting that the Black Crows are free jazz. Or if they are, I must have been wildly misinformed about this type of music. I mean, I hope that doesn't disqualify me from producing this surefire hit. But I mean, like so many people, you know, their issue with free jazz, they they say it's just noise. I mean, imagine that. But like, what if we wrote some quality tunes around it, you know? 
Like in the style of Annie or Grease? I think Phantom of the Opera would confuse the issue, you know? Unless it was like Free Jazz Fusion, the musical. But but you could have like, you know, like, you know, like how do you solve a problem like Maria? Well, like, how do you solve a problem like Ornette Coleman? Not that he's a problem, but it took me a long time to begin to understand what he's doing, you know? So I guess, how do you solve a puzzle like Ornette Coleman? There you go. We got the opening number in already. All right, maybe some of you are saying we just have a title, but you know, same number of syllables. Maybe we could just set it to the tune of how do you solve a problem like Maria? Then you got Maria from West Side Story. You know, is that the problem they were talking about? That tune, you know, that interval? I mean, Sound of Music came out after West Side Story. Taking things further east, no less, to Germany! Then there's cats, you know? People say cats when talking about jazz musicians. We're on a roll now, well... Though, wait a minute, I've never actually seen the musical Cats. It's it's not already about free jazz, is it? I know it's based on that T.S. Eliot play, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. That doesn't really sound like a play about exploring the multiple modalities and tonalities inherent in free jazz. I mean, I'm not sure any of Eliot's work does. Y'all want to hear the rest of this story, and believe me, there's more. We haven't even gotten to Bauhaus yet. Head on over to youngsouthpaw.com. It's episode number 41 of the Young Southpaw Part of an Hour podcast. Or you can get it from any of your podcast providers, you know. And there's 51 other stories to choose from. It's like a Baskin Robbins of absurdity, plus 20 flavors. But let's get to this week's episode of this podcast. Man, I saw Cuneiform Records just put out an album called A Love Supreme Electric. So being a Coltrane fan, I of course gave it a listen. And whoa, it just blew me away right from the get-go. It's this huge, far-reaching sound, and I love it, man. And Henry Kaiser, the guitarist behind this project awesomely agreed to come on the show and talk about it. It was a bit of a weird setup because, like, we had to do it over landlines, talking into the phones with the mics in front of us to record separately and then put it all together later. But it gave us a special treat in the fact that Henry got to accompany our whole talk with improv guitar work. So this is a first for me. I hope you enjoy it, too. So let's get to it. All right, we're here today with Mr. Henry Kaiser. How you doing today, Henry? I am doing very good. I'm here with my guitar, which is is helping me out as my security blanket during interviews. Nice harmonic there. Yeah. (laughs) You want to have the guitar say hello? There, it says hello. Excellent. (laughs) So the new record, I love Supreme Electric. I'm loving it, man. It's just... It's the music I love. It just goes for it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Tell me how this all came together. 
Well, so I was sitting at home one day and the phone rang and it was a booker at a local club and he said, hey, this guy I know, this drummer, has been playing a Love Supreme, John Coltrane's acoustic in the regular quartet um, instrumentation and can I give him your number? He wanted to see if you wanted to play guitar. And I called him up and I said, sure, but um, what are we going to do for the second set? And he said, oh, we can just play some other Coltrane standards. And I said, no, let's, let's do meditations. He says, meditations, I never really listened to that one that much. And I said, I think it belongs with the Love Supreme. I think they're two parts of the same story. And so we did, and it was really great. Um, and then we kept doing it with different people, different bands every time, just the two of us the same uh, on me on guitar and him on drums. And um, we did it maybe 10 or 15 times, and then we decided to make a recording of it, which is the one you have on the CD that you're enjoying. Excellent. So it's evolved over time. You... It, it's completely different every time we play it and with each different people we play it with and we try to find different things. Sometimes we play meditations. Sometimes we'll play other stuff for the other set. Um, it's, it's the most fun thing. It's a piece that has a life of its own, say like The Grateful Dead's Dark Star or something like that. It does what it wants to do. It plays the players. The players don't really play it. Excellent. Yeah, I was reading that in, uh, in the press release. You were saying Dark Star and the other one are external entities that exist beyond The Grateful Dead. That's my experience from playing them, and that's my experience from being friends with everybody in The Grateful Dead and having played with them over the years, those individually. And I think that's the experience with those, those critters, Dark Star and the other one. What are some other examples of this? You know, there's not, you know, there's not a lot of other great examples. Maybe original Pink Floyd with Sid Barrett when they played... Uh, Interstellar Overdrive at the UFO Club. But I can't think of too many pieces in rock that are really open that go to different places every time. Can you? Not really. And I can't really think of many things like that in the jazz tradition, you know. Standards have little sub-lives of their own, but they, they just tell the same story every time. And a love supreme in meditations seem to tell a different story every time. Hmm. Are you familiar with the British pop band James? I am not. Okay, that's, that's the one example I could think of. I remember when I was 18, I saw them uh, at a club in New Haven, Connecticut, and they just really... I mean, the songs are pop songs on record, but when they did them live, they just stretched them out, and they went you know, into these weird, completely unexpected places. Mm -hmm. But, like you're saying, it's not a very common occurrence, especially in pop music. Yeah, and it's funny. Um, I know my experience with Dark Star, I think I was the first person to really be covering Dark Star, non-imitative of the Grateful Dead back in the uh, 80s, um, is that it definitely felt like an external entity or a door that you went through to another place and you'd find different things every time. And I think that there's something so slightly different about uh, a love supreme in Meditations of Coltrane. You know, at the beginning of uh, 
a love supreme and acknowledgement Coltrane's kind of playing in a, an invocation to what he sees as the Christian Baptist kind of God, uh, the, the tradition he grew up with. And um, it's a dialogue with that for him. But that's kind of a traditional thing with shamanism and music the world over, where uh, shamans and musicians um, communicate with spirits. And I would say that a love supreme meditation seems to me more like they're a door that you open and then spirits come through the door and play you. You don't go somewhere, but something else shows up and plays you. Uh, one funny thought I'd had about that as regards a love supreme is a, a great Korean musician friend of mine and the Korean traditional music tradition is called Gugak, G-U. G-A-K, Gugak. Um, she says to me, I listen to Coltrane's Love Supreme, and why does he play Gugak phrasing? How does he play Gugak phrasing? And I said, well, had he heard some Korean music back then in 1964 or whatever? And so I looked on Discogs at Korean releases in the U.S. There's a couple on Folkways, but there's nothing with that kind of phrasing that, that Coltrane could have heard. So a theory I have is that when Coltrane was invoking the Christian Baptist God, maybe he got some other spirits too that um, had something to do with the music or maybe the Christian Baptist God um, is a little more cross-cultural and sent the Korean spirits to talk to Coltrane. Because it is funny because he is playing some Korean phrasing that he couldn't possibly know. And since I, I've studied the Korean music a lot, either that means I'm just obsessed by it and I'm hearing that pattern there when it's not really there, or maybe I'm right, but the Korean musician heard it there too, so who knows? Funny I like story. that theory a lot. I'm thinking, though, you know, probably tapped into something universal. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, out. yeah. That's the, e that's the easiest 20th century beginning of New Age way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> You say you change up the second set sometime playing other than meditations. What where do you go for? Um, you know, I, we I used to be in this project with uh, Wadada Leo Smith, Yo Miles, where we play the 1973 to 1975 Miles repertoire and new material in that vein. And we did one show where we did that for another set. Oh, nice. um, and then we pulled out other Coltrane things like India. One funny thing that happened at one gig was it was the beginning of the gig and the club had misprinted the starting time in their ads and they'd put it for an hour later than it was. And the club says, okay, time to start, 7 o'clock, Sunday show. And I was, we were like, it says 8 o'clock on your website, the posters you put out. And they're like, well, we'll start at 7 anyway. And we're like, no, people come to hear Love Supreme and they're not all here yet. And uh, this kind of went on for a half hour at about 7.45. So you have to start now or you just go home and the audience is mad. And I just turned to everybody and said, well, let's play Spoonful. Like John Coltrane would play it. Um, nice. And we did. And that's kind of interesting. Things like that would happen. Unexpected things. We, we played McCoy Tyner's Atlantis. I don't really remember. If I have to think about it I, or look at the set list, I'd know what else we play. Now, how did doing Yo Miles inform what you're doing with Coltrane stuff? <sighs> you know, while this material that Yo Miles was playing, 73 to 75, 
10 years after A Love Supreme and Meditations, or almost 10 years after, a lot of the same things were in the musical air in the Afro-American tradition in the U.S. Um, with free jazz and with world music influences. And we applied... Those, th- those things were used in more sophisticated ways by Miles Davis, though not a lot of people noticed post-Bitches post Brew before his 1975 retirement. And... Um, those pieces, there's a piece of Miles actually that's that's like Dark Star or um, A Love Supreme, which but it's just one piece called Ife, and it's something that is just based on that just that lick, and there's a melody. Um, but it was something that would open up into different places every time, and I think coming from the African spiritual tradition. Did you ever get to see Miles? Uh, I saw that band many, many times, and I made friends with Pete Cozy, uh, the guitarist in that band, when I f- was first starting to play in 1973, been playing for a year, and Pete was very helpful. And then, oddly enough, we ended up doing the O Miles, and then when Pete was sick, I would sub for him in live gigs with Miles from India, a band that he was in. Um, so yes, I saw I probably saw him ten or twelve times at least. The band with with Pete Cozy and Reggie Lucas and Matume and Michael Henderson and Al Foster and uh, various saxophone players. That's some of my favorite music. That... I love that stuff. Yeah. And you know, if you go through the live bootlegs and recordings there are of it, there's some real surprises in in what those pieces of his do on different nights. I'm gonna have to investigate that some more. Um, I feel a tribute to Jack Johnson is such it doesn't get talked about enough. Yes, I love I, I love that. Um, yeah, I think Jack Johnson is Miles's best trumpet playing, and I don't see too many other people say that. But I think that's his best telling a story with a trumpet. That's his best phrasing. I think that uh, for expressing yourself through an instrument, for me, that's the high point of him expressing himself through an instrument. And the band, of course, is is pretty much on fire for that shuffle and for everything on that record. That's a great, great record. You know, people go on and on about Bitches Brew. I was reading a book about Bitches Brew recently, and the guy was saying how everything was terrible, just trash after Bitches Brew. And that was used to be a very common opinion in the the jazz uh, journalist community, but I don't think it was among listeners. No. I don't see that at all. Uh, speaking of books, um, John Hanran had a crazy experience of finding Ashley Kahn's A Making of a Love Supreme at City Lights after Elvin Jones recommended it to him. Yes. Uh, then he opened it, and the recording date was his birthday. Have, yeah. you, have you had any wild coincidences while you've been doing this project? <sighs> no, not really with this. Okay. Not really with this. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've we've done this. We've brought people who used to be into the old Miles... Yo Miles Band to, to do a Love Supreme, Michael Mannering, um, Larry Oaks, different people who played in both both things. And I say to all of them, you know, hey, we just apply the same formulas like we do in Yo Miles, the way we looked at that material, that we the way Miles used those formulas to make generative structures for making new music every night. We just apply that to a Love Supreme and Meditations. And that's 
obvious to all of them and we just do it and it just works. So funny thing. <laughs> now you're saying that you think of Meditations is a spiritual sequel to a love supreme. That's what he said. That's okay. what Coltrane said. So, so I think so. I saying Coltrane said that. So, I'll go along with that. He's the authority. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think because, you know, it was wilder and it had Pharaoh screaming on you know reviews at the time. They all say Pharaoh Sanders sounds like somebody killing a chicken instead of somebody playing a saxophone. <laughs> you know, I think that that put a lot of people off. But that was an expression that was needed at the time. Mm. And I think, I think Pharaoh is speaking with more of an Islamic tradition um, there in the context of meditations rather than a Christian tradition. You know, people would say that uh, um, Pharaoh is Islamic tradition and Coltrane was Baptist. And Albert Eiler, another free jazz saxophone player of that period, was, was Pentecostal. Um, talking in tongues and stuff. And I think that those are valid observations that those things relate to those traditions. Yeah, I can see that. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah. I was going to ask, because uh, Ascension and Kulu Mama came between those two records. Right. And Ascension, man, I, I love that album. Ascension's great. I, I never actually played Ascension, but my friends in the Ro- Rova Saxophone Quartet used to do it a live electric ascension and played that many times and there's you know a dvd there's recordings of it i've just i've just listened to it i never got to see it that sounded like a fun piece to play a while ago rova saxophone quartet with me and uh bass and drums and john paul borelli on guitar we did um cecil taylor's dark to themselves which is a Cecil Taylor ensemble album that has the most written material by the by the stopwatch, <laughs> and uh, Steve Adams transcribed it all, and we did a giant arrangement of it. I hope we get to record that someday. Nice. Do you remember the first time you heard Coltrane? Um, the first time I hold Cold Coltrane was my freshman year in college. I would have been 16 years old because I went to college a year early. And um, uh, a woman named Kit Ralt played a Love Supreme for me in her dorm room while we sat on her mattress bedspread and listened to it. And someone else asked me that recently, <laughs> and I hadn't remembered that, and then I remembered that. I'm, you know, I'm sure I heard Coltrane before on underground radio in San Francisco when I was in high school, but that was the first time I was really aware of it very much. And so that would have been 1969. And uh, so I, I actually tracked her down and sent her a copy of the CD and thanked her. And she was very surprised. <laughs> you know, so, so many years later. Awesome. Do you remember the first time you heard Miles? I do not. But Miles got played a lot on underground radio in the Bay Area. Um, in the in the 60s and you know they, they play the kind of blue album a lot um, you'd hear all blues on the radio over and over again uh-huh. or so what that's what got played on the radio back then I don't remember the first time I saw Miles but it was either Jazz Workshop or Paul's Mall in Boston um, in 73 oh cool I might have seen him in yeah 73 or I might have seen him at the 
Greek theater in Berkeley, a jazz festival. I just can't remember. Maybe that was first. I can't remember which gig was first. So long ago. Hmm. So what was it that made you fall in love with music as a child? Um, it was just... I, I, I really got into music in high school, and I think it was the San Francisco music scene, the kind of live gigs we could go to. Uh, we could go see the Ali Akbar College of Music and see all kinds of great Indian music and go to all-night concerts of Indian music. We'd go to the Avalon and Winterland and Fillmore and see amazing things and amazing bills that Bill Graham would book where he'd you know, put B.B. King, Charles Lloyd, and, and love, you know, something like that. Um, so I, I just got to see a lot of music. There was underground radio. There was non-commercial radio. I heard 20th century classical music, experimental music. And uh, I fell in love with enjoying music as a consumer in high school. Didn't start playing guitar till I got to college. Got a guitar in 1971, November 1st. Um, you remember that? Yep. And um, then I became a producer instead of just a consumer. <laughs> Slowly. Was there something in particular that made you want to pick up the guitar? I went, three three experiences made me want to pick up guitar that happened in the same week. I heard an album called Topography of the Lungs with Derek Bailey, Evan Parker, and Han Bennett. And I could identify, um, Derek, like Derek Bailey was talking directly to me with his guitar. And I went to a really great John Fahey concert in a high school auditorium where he played for three hours and played his whole repertoire. Wow. And then right after that, I went to a um, Captain Beefheart concert oh. at Tufts University in Massachusetts. And um, Fred McDowell was opening. This was before the Spotlight Kid was released, and they played that material. And Elliot Ingber, uh, Wingdeal Fingerling, guitarist who'd also been in The Mothers with Frank Zappa, played the best, most exciting, moving guitar solo I'd ever heard in my life on an instrumental called Alice in Blunderland. And I went out and uh, bought a guitar the next day. I still have that guitar. Oh, wow. What is it? It's a it's a black Telecaster, actually. I just made a, a, a video show about my first three guitars that, go, that went up on Thanksgiving. Um, it's at the Cuneiform Records... YouTube page. So if you search for C-U-N-E-I-F-O-R-M records uh, on YouTube, find their their thing there and look at the videos, you'll find one called a Thanksgiving for Guitars. And I tell that whole story and show the guitar. And, oh, nice. Um, and a funny thing, the first day I brought the guitar back to my dorm room, I just put on, I could put a slide on my finger because I knew you could make noise with a slide. And I just tried to play along with several records. I tried to play on the Grateful Dead record, make some sounds with a, with Captain Beefheart record. Um, I tried to play along with Pharaoh Sanders' Towhood with Sonny Chirac on guitar. And I played with uh, a 1964 record of music from Madagascar called Valiha Madagascar. And then weirdly enough, I've performed or recorded with somebody with most of the people on each of those records oh so wow we so weird first day how that happened that's weird that's like a magic spell put in motion yeah that's awesome yeah so you went to school in boston yes i did okay i was um 
an emancipated minor when I was young. So I was on my own and independent since I was 14 with, with no adults or anything. So I had to, to, to learn to survive on my own very quickly. Oh, wow. And music was, as I say, just something I was a consumer of that I enjoyed that I never thought I would do until that guitar solo of Elliot Ingber spoke to me that night and said, you have to go get a guitar. Wow. And then I, of course, became friends with Elliot. He's like my guru in a way. He's kind of a reclusive person in Hollywood. Um, and uh, I played with those people who are in the first, you know, many, many, many of my heroes I've got to play and record with. It's crazy. Thanks. More than most people get to. <laughs> I went to school in Boston as well in the 90s, but what was great about it was... Uh, because of all the universities, there's just a constant stream of live bands coming through. Yes, we had the same thing there, too, yeah. You know, we get see Zappa, see the Grateful Dead, see Fleetwood Mac, yeah, etc. Peter Green, Fleetwood Mac, of course, yeah. Oh, wow. So, what was the experience like of making a Love Supreme Electric in the studio? We just went, you know, we played a gig the night before at a club called McCabe's in Santa Monica. And then we just went in the studio and played it again. And we'd had no no rehearsal really before. And we just, um, everybody's pretty competent, <laughs> more than competent in, in that band. Um, Henry Han on drums, uh, Vinnie Golia, amazing saxophone player from L.A., Mike Watt from the Minutemen and everything else on bass, and Wayne Pete, a terrific organist in the L.A. jazz and improv music scene. So it was, we'd all done our homework, looked at the material, and we just played it. Nice. I think we did a couple of takes of it and went through and picked out the best sections from each and stuck it together, just like the Coltrane would making the record himself. What did anything did anything surprise you particularly about the record? Surprise. When I put it on, and it was one of those things where, you know, I was just putting something on, like within the first, you know, twenty seconds, I was just, you know, glued to my speakers. I was like, wow, this is enormous, I think would be the word. <laughs> um just yeah just a huge soundscape and then i was just completely sucked into what you guys were doing and taking it um it's hard to put into words which is you know why we have music <laughs> you know i think the thing was just speaking through us and it speaks to the audience through us that's that's my guess because we're not going about it any kind of musical school way or any egotistical way we just try to get out of the way there Were you hesitant at all about how a guitar might work with it? No. Because, I mean, come on. Look at McLaughlin Santana, where they play acknowledgement from a love supreme on the love, devotion, surrender record. That's true. You know, that's, that's, that's you know, like a big banner saying you can do that. And, and an odd story about that is they did a promotional tour. Um, and it, I, was, I was unexpectedly in the Bay Area. 
and I noticed they were playing that night at the Berkeley Community Theater. And those are the days where you had to go to a ticket agency to buy tickets. You didn't buy tickets online or on the phone. Mm. And I went to this Sherman Clay ticket agency window and said, do you have tickets for that? And they said, oh, we just got some front row seats. Do you want those? And so I was like, okay. And I bought a front row seat for each show, two shows. And I went, and the first show, I was directly in front of Carlos, 15 feet from him. And the next show, I was directly in front of McLaughlin, 15 feet from him. So I got that played in my face by amazing band Larry Young on organ. They had, they had Cobham and Jan Heimer playing drums and then percussionists from Santana. Wow. That, it was amazing. So that stuck with me and that, that provided some impetus from that. And occasionally I played that acknowledgement from a love supreme in the past. It, it, it's just, it's a fun thing to play. Yeah. That's the, that's the, you know, the, you know, it's that, that, that part, that's acknowledgement for this. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Serendipity <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any so other sort I'm of life changing gigs? <laughs> I'm sure there were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. I, I happen to have been a lot of historically important Grateful Dead gigs just by chance. The one that's the bowling alley at Lake Tahoe in 67 that's on Anthem of the Sun. The um, Longshoreman's Hall acid test. Um, I got to see several of the big wall of sound gigs. That was a funny thing. So when I first um, decided to record Dark Star, it was for a um, SST label, and I asked Bill Frizzell and his band if they wanted to do it, and he was like, sure. And then Bill Frizzell's management says, oh, it'll ruin your reputation if you play Grateful Dead. You can't do that. <laughs> and so he wasn't allowed but to do it, and... Uh, my friend Glenn Phillips from the Hampton Grease Band from Atlanta, Georgia, called him, and he came and did it. So we recorded uh, Dark Star. I'd never met anybody in the Grateful Dead. And um, I called up their publicist when I had product and said, hey, can I come give these to the guys and get them to sign the back of my guitar? And he said, sure, come down to the show. And I went down to the show and gave, gave it to people, and everybody was very nice. And... Um, I gave them copies and they signed my guitar and then I talked to the roadies for a long time and then the next week in the mail comes a laminate pass all access for the tour and then I was always sent these all all access laminate passes and I would just you know be friendly go talk to Garcia I could go into Garcia's just walk in and go to Garcia's dressing room and we talk about books and movies and things and um I was just allowed this weird kind of access that you don't get because I didn't care. <laughs> That's how it worked there. And then I would ask people, hey, you want where you want to come play on this thing with us? And he's like, okay. Hey, you want to go play a gig? Sure. And so I got to do have direct interaction with him on a lot of things that wouldn't normally happen. My friend Jeremy Marr, a great British music documentary director, made this doc four four hour documentary with Derek Bailey, my 
main guitar hero on improvisation and I'm, so I got, got we went and filmed Jerry at his home in San Rafael at the time and stuff so I got to have a lot of you know Weir and I played gigs in Japan in front of 60,000 people got to wow. have a lot of a lot of mileage out of playing that dark star <laughs> what books would you talk about with Jerry Oh, whatever we're reading. Like I remember bringing a book by Ed, Ed, Edward Hoagland called Seven Rivers West, which had, um, you know, pioneer stuff in the West. And I said, hey, bet you like this. And then he read it and we you talk about whatever, we're, whatever we're, we're interested in. Who are some of your favorite authors? Well, in, I, I like science fiction. A lot that I grew up with, so I like people like Samuel R. Delaney, Jack Vance, um, Joanna Russ, people like that, and you know Pynchon, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, I'm a huge Pynchon fan. Yeah, I hope we, I hope we get one more book out of him. I, I was just thinking that last night. <laughs> yeah, I, I looked for rumors. A friend of mine runs a Pynchon website, um, but there's no clear rumors. What's your favorite pension novel? But um, Mason Dixon. Really? Yeah, which is not most people's favorite. Ni- favorite. Hence my exclamation. Uh, um, yeah. <sighs> you know, Gravity Rainbow, okay, it has some nice stuff in it, but it's not my favorite like it is for most people. I know some people who like Crying of Lot 49 most because it's manageable. <laughs> but... I really love Mason Dixon for the language and for what happens and the humor. Yeah, I. Against the Day is my personal favorite, but Mason and Dixon. I, you know, I've, I've been meaning to read Against the Day again. I, just, I realized that that's what I didn't devote enough time to. It's it's amazing. I love the um, in Mason and Dixon the sort of uh, Chinese feng shui view of the land. Uh, yes. The natural landforms versus the Jesuit imposing, you know, straight lines. I thought that was just wonderful. Yeah, he's so smart and he's so erudite and educated, Pynchon, and he shines light on so many interesting things. And in that book, he really shines light on America in so many ways. Yeah. And I watched uh, the Inherent Vice film again the other night. Um, I've watched that twice too. It's it's interesting. It's you know it's some a lot of stuff's right in it. Yeah, I got a lot more out of it as well. Yeah, how much I mean as you would expect, but and like at the end, I you know I at first I assumed that Bigfoot was setting him up by leaving the heroin in his uh, trunk, in Doc's trunk, but then it kind of looks like he was giving him the out to make the deal <laughs> to get uh you know the Harlingtons back together. Yeah, I haven't any. I haven't read any interviews with the director on that film. I, I should go back and see what I can find. Yeah, it sounds like we're interested in some of the same things for sure. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's like the the interest we're talking about there, folks out in Listenerland. <laughs> you know, we want to know more and we want to know in depth about a lot of things. Um, and I I think that's what supports and produces richness and diversity in art. That's what I think. Mm. And Pigeon just seems to know everything about everything. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about gigs. What was the last gig you played before everything shut down? Uh, I played a gig in London uh, two days before they 
closed things off um, there in March um, with Eddie Prevo, great drummer from England, and a bunch of other people. And I'd just been in London, planned to stay for a week, and left a couple days early to get out just in time, um, just in time, and made three albums. Um, oh, wow. And one, one with John Russell has come out. There's another one with um, Ray Russell. That's in the pipeline. And there's another with a young saxophone player, Binker Golding, and Eddie Prevo, and No More, and O'Moore, and Ollie Bryce that, that just got sold. I think today someone was telling me to, who's the producer to uh, 577 Records label in Brooklyn. Oh, nice. And here during this time, I've been. Uh, Normally, I work in Antarctica this time of the year because I'm a research diver there. I've had 13 deployments to Antarctica. And uh, normally, I'd be down there, but there's no new research this year, and the program's kind of mothballed in a way. So I'm not down there, and that's strange. And it's strange not to make be playing gigs, um, still working on a bunch of records, post-production on things, new collaboration things. And I do a weekly video show on the Cuneiform Records YouTube uh, page where sometimes I'll show historical things, sometimes I'll make new things. Just working on a show right now, was working on it last night with me and Mike Keneally and guitarist Scott Colby and Jimmy Ogren and drummer Morgan Ogren where we play um, a 10-minute version of Zappa's More Trouble Every Day and then we do a Beefheart thing which never got recorded in the studio called uh, Hoboism, also 10 minutes long. Oh, nice. I'll have to check so, that out. Yeah, so that's going to be fun. That, uh, that'll be either up a week from Thanksgiving after or two weeks from after. I don't know when you're going to run this show, but it's, a, it's the day before Thanksgiving today here. Yeah, this will be out on Monday. Ah. What, how long do you usually spend in Antarctica? Um, I used to go down for three or four months and be in a field camp and in the field. I've, I've spent three years of my life living in a tent on the sea ice. Not, not a lot of people who are not Inuit cannot say that. And um, now I go for usually for two months. What do you usually do for Thanksgiving in Antarctica? I kind of don't go to the big Thanksgiving dinner because I'm not social in large groups. Ah. And it's too social in large groups for me. So I'll, I'll just keep working. So we, we work there um, on a scientific deployment because there's not a lot of um, money or support or personnel. We work 20-hour days, seven days a week for two to four months with no breaks. Wow. And I'm a diver there under the ice. So it's there's a lot of hard physical work of going to the dive site, making the dive holes, going diving, et cetera. And wow. I love it. I miss it. <laughs> Great. Do you have a guitar down there? Um, yes, I'll have a guitar down there, and there's like two two bars at McMurdo Station, and I'll usually play a gig or two. Wow. How does the temperature affect the uh, the instrument? Not not much. Oh, you really? Know, I, one time I took a guitar to a field camp, and the neck got totally destroyed and warped like a giant had taken it and twisted the neck uh, over the season, so I'll, I'll generally bring ones I know are more stable okay and there's a music room there like a band room would be on a military base and uh, there's a bunch of guitars in there so you can always grab one of those and play one of those oh nice 
I, I did not expect Antarctica to be like that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, there's McMurdo has a thousand, twelve hundred people normally in the summer, hundred people or less in the winter. I think those are the numbers now. But now there's almost nobody there because of the COVID. Hmm. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. That's all my questions. You got anything else you want to add? Um, let me just play something weird here. Can I do that? Please. Is that allowed? Let's see. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I hope we talk again someday and have something else exciting to talk about. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. That was awesome. Henry's got a lot going on, man. It was a pleasure to speak with him about it all. And check out A Love Supreme Electric. It's one of my favorite records released this year. Out now on Cuneiform Records. And give Henry's Yo Miles project a listen to. I just listened to that album again yesterday. So good. Miles' electric early 70s work, one of my favorite periods of music. In Southpaw News, the Lost Archimedes album is available now on Apple Music, Amazon, and those. Do give it a listen. The Quietest called it far more interesting than your normal stand-up album. And what's evident after each listen is how funny the album is and how intricate each track is. So that's rad. It's also over at Bandcamp, youngsouthpaw.bandcamp.com. There's a whole bunch of stories up over there. And if you like these shows, please rate and review, subscribe, share. Much appreciated if you do. I'm going to play you out now with the track Psalm from A Love Supreme Electric. Thanks, y'all, for listening.